of independent thought my name is desmond price no matter where you are in the world i want to thank you for giving me a few minutes of your day to hear my thoughts as always we have a great show for you today now here are our topics hello everyone welcome back to another episode of independent thought my name is desmond price Thank you to everyone who is here today checking out this episode. Thank you to all the new listeners and to all of my returning listeners. It's a pleasure to have you back with us for this episode. Sources for this episode will be as follow. Uh, The AP News, NPR, PBS, the Center for Investigative Reporting, and the College of Law at Syracuse University. For today's subject, we are talking about a story that I saw come across the AP wire a few weeks back that I kind of wanted to talk about more quickly, but you know, other other subjects kind of popped up that I felt had to come first. So third in line, more or less, but an equally as important story as the first two from this season. The title that I saw was California is set to pay reparations for forced or coerced sterilization. And my first thought when I saw this story come across the wire was, wait, what did you say? What, what exactly? What, what was that? What was that article? How, what? Okay. So California was sterilizing people. Why, why were they doing this? How long was this going on for? I had a lot of questions, obviously. And so through those questions kind of birthed this, this episode, like why exactly was California at a place where it felt like it needed to pay people for sterilizations? And how long exactly were, was California sterilizing people for? Why don't I know more about this story? So let's talk about it. In order to talk about this story, though, the first thing I have to do is talk about not just California's role in this, but our whole country's role in this, in a role of eugenics. And what exactly is eugenics? Well, definition-wise, eugenics is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable. Developed largely by Sir Francis Galton, okay, as a method of improving the human race, eugenics was increasingly discredited as unscientific and racially biased during the 20th century, especially after the adoption of its doctrines by the Nazis in order to justify their treatment of the Jews, disabled people, and other minority groups. Eugenics, everyone. Yes. I have not touched this subject yet on independent thought, but we are here today. And how exactly is eugenics involved with this California story? Well, it's everything, actually. Eugenics has a very, unfortunately, deep-rooted history within our history. So much so that it goes back to even Alexander Graham Bell, who in the 1880s actually professed that he thought that eugenics was a good thing for the world as he was noticing that deaf people in Massachusetts were more likely to give birth to children who are also deaf. Therefore, in his mind, he concluded that it was probably best for people who are dealing with congenital deafness that they do not procreate for the betterment of society. The eugenics movement was widespread in its popularity throughout much of the early 20th century. In fact, there were overall, there was an overall consensus among so many in the scientific community that felt that though that this was a way to better our society as a whole. 
shortly before the 1900s, in 1896, Connecticut became the first state to pass a marriage law with eugenic criteria. It prohibited anyone who was epileptic, a quote-unquote imbecile, it's kind of insulting, or quote-unquote feeble-minded from marrying. So basically, if you had a mental illness of any kind or appeared to have one, you weren't allowed to get married. This is truly barbaric stuff, by the way. And it honestly, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that this was around a century ago. And you, I'm just thinking about the development of us as a human race. You think about truly barbaric things. You, you think that they're deep within our history, that they are centuries ago, that they are in the dark ages. This was 1896. Shortly after that, Indiana became the first state in America to enact compulsory, I'm sorry, compulsory sterilization legislation, also known as forced or coerced sterilization. This was in 1907. And shortly after Indiana passed that law, California passed its own law two years later in 1909. Now, sterilization remained relatively low in our country for the first few decades after these laws were passed until around the time of 1927, where a, where a case was brought before the Supreme Court that was known as Buck versus Bell, where a sterilization law that was on the books in Virginia was attempt to be challenged. However, the challenge was unsuccessful. In that 1927 court case, Buck versus Bell, the Supreme Court decided by a vote of eight to one to uphold a state's right to forcibly sterilize a person considered unfit to procreate. The case centered on a young woman named Carrie Buck, who the state of Virginia had deemed feeble-minded. Now, author, author Adam Cohen tells, Co he tells Fresh Air Terry Gross, I'm reading an NPR article, by the way. This NPR article actually was a really well done piece on this story, as well as going a little bit deeper, not into California's history in this, but other states as well during this time. I will link that in the description, so make sure you check out this particular article. But this author, Adam Cohen, says that this decision made by the Supreme Court was a huge victory for America's eugenics movements, as the movement at the time was trying to actively breed out traits that were considered undesirable out of American society. There were all kinds of categories of people who were deemed to be unfit to procreate, Cohen says. The eugenicists looked at evolution and survival of the fittest as Darwin was describing it. And they believed we can help nature along if we just plan who reproduces and who doesn't reproduce. So who was mostly affected by this? A lot of times it was people dealing with mental, mental disabilities of all kinds. The term back then was called the mentally deficient. They also targeted minorities, poor people, and what they would call promiscuous women. So all in all, a very disgusting practice that not only was being taken up in, in states like Indiana or in California, but it was actually taking place all over the country. But we are here to talk a little bit more about what we saw in California, because it was after this 1927 ruling came down that California's eugenics movement really got going. During this time, over 20,000 people in California were forcibly or coerced into sterilization which during the entire century was almost a third of all the people sterilized in America happened to have been sterilized in the state of California. And this was something that, again, people in California didn't seem to really have too much of an issue, of, too much of an issue with, especially in the scientific community. See, the promise of the eugenics movement in the beginning was that we'll do away with state institutions, which a lot of people were on board with. State institutions like prisons, hospitals, asylums, orphanages, they were promised to be 
dealt with away because the people who would be in them just wouldn't be born if you sterilized all of their parents. Gross, right? So as I was saying before, prominent people in society believed in these practices. Who are these prominent people? Well, scientists at Stanford in the 1930s promoted sterilization as a way to enhance society. So much so that they wanted to share the information that they were proclaiming and studying in California. They wanted to share with other people throughout the world. So who did they share some of this information with? Well, they shared, it, they shared it with other scientists, of course. Some of the scientists they shared it with were scientists that were in the Third Reich. In fact, during the Nuremberg trials, while Nazis were answering for the crimes of World War II, for the Holocaust. Several, Nazi, several Nazis said that the eugenics program in California inspired Hitler to administer his own eugenics program in Germany. And in fact, not only was he inspired, he did so, as we mostly know. The Nazis sterilized 450,000, approximately, Jews in less than 10 years during the 1930s and 1940s. And even with all of that ugly history that we're talking about, California didn't repeal this law until 1979. And so was that the end of sterilizations happening in California? Are they still going on in modern time? That was the one thing I was trying to figure out, which is a very, very interesting thing to try to figure out. I'll tell you that I spent... I think close to a half an hour trying to find the answer to this question as I was going through and Googling information about this story this week. One thing I did find was that I don't think, I don't think the answer is truly no because these stories didn't end in 1979. In fact, in 2013, the Center for Investigative Reporting said that nearly 150 women were sterilized in prison without the approval of the state. Now, due to this fact, when this did become known to the state of California, there were meetings by assembly members within the Capitol in Sacramento, and apparently a lot of these people were in fact shocked that this was going on without the knowledge of the state government, which then led to the 2014 ban of sterilizations in state prisons and local jails. I'll note that it's only a ban in state prisons and local jails. California, to try to atone for its history, for these women who were sterilized in prison, for the 20,000 plus that were sterilized during the eugenics movements, which spanned over decades, they are now going to become the third state to pay reparations to the victims who are still alive. The other two states, if you're wondering, are North Carolina and Virginia. And a fun fact about Virginia is that the court case that I referenced earlier in the episode, the one in 1927, that court case was challenging the sterilization law in Virginia, the 1924 Sterilization Act of Virginia, which to this day has never been declared unconstitutional, not to this day, it is still considered constitutional. However, in 2001, the Virginia General Assembly apologized to the victims for the misuse of, and I quote, a respectable and scientific veneer. Can you imagine hearing those words after everything I've been describing just now about sterilization efforts here in our country? that after all of that, these people who are assembly members in Virginia's state government had the gall to call it a respectable scientific veneer. I mean, I mean truly, I, I can't even imagine just how soulless you have to be to describe it that way after all of this. Not only that, but I also found out that this has been happening in other states recently. In fact, just in this past decade, Tennessee 
was still sterilizing prisoners, but voluntarily. So in Tennessee, what was happening over just, just recent accounts of this, just a few years ago, was saying that they would allow inmates to trade a lesser jail sentence if they agreed to become sterilized. Only two years ago, in 2019, did a federal judge finally rule this to be, well, he didn't rule it to be unconstitutional, but that judge did rule it to end. So that program is no longer allowed to happen in the state of Tennessee. And so this leads me to my next question. Is this still legal in America? Is this still legal in America? I, I, I really was getting a little distraught doing the research for this episode because I couldn't figure out the answer to that question. And it's probably because the answer is a little complicated. As noted by Lydia Powers, who wrote a paper for the School of Law at Syracuse University just last year in October of 2020, this is what she wrote. While state sterilization laws have been repealed, there are still gaps in state and federal protections. Currently, sterilization debates continue to emerge most in regards to incarcerated individuals, immigrants, and populations under guardianship or living with a disability. Some protections have emerged such as Medicaid laws, which require specific consent forms before sterilization procedures, federal public health law title 42, which regulates the use of sterilization procedures on institutionalized individuals and bans the use of federal funds for inmate sterilization and various state statutory enactments. But, and here's the big but, there still has not been a sweeping declaration by the Supreme Court ruling eugenics or forced sterilization unconstitutional. That is current. That is right now. Last year, in 2020, there were reports of women who are being held in ICE detention camps who were forcibly sterilized. That is still being federally prosecuted. And as of today, there's been no determination on that case. So sterilizations have taken place in all 50 states, all 50. It is something that is more than a black eye on our nation. And so as I said in the beginning, I want to talk about now, like why is this important to talk about right now? Like, like why is this issue relevant today? Well, besides the fact that it's completely gross and there's absolutely no excuse for why forced sterilizations or any sort of coerced sterilization is even remotely still constitutional. There is an additional reason why I wanted to bring this to everyone's attention today. So a couple of weeks ago, I did an episode on critical race theory. Now I had been thinking about making that episode for a few months now. It has been, as I said in the episode, a flashpoint in our culture right now. Forgive me for not being a little more, I guess, nice about it, but no one's shutting up about this issue, including me. We're all talking about it, right? And there seems to be a very big chasm between all of us. The first issue is, as I noticed, as I noted in the episode, no one can even agree on what critical race theory is. First of all, what's actually being taught in K through 12 schools isn't actually critical race theory. But I guess if you really want to be technical, there are certain pieces of critical race theory that are being taught in schools, but it's not actually critical race theory. Either way, the point is, is that what we are arguing about is the curriculum itself, this curriculum that is teaching or trying to teach children about the darker parts of our history and how they still affect us today and how those who have been affected by it, how their lives have been altered by the events of our fucked up past. So one of the critiques against teaching children 
let's just call it critical race theory to be just for the ease of this conversation, even though that's not what it is. It's not what it is, but just to make this conversation easier, that's what we're going to call it. So one of the critiques is that teaching children history in this way makes children hate America. It makes them hate the country that they're living in. This is a critique that I've heard from several people. Now, this, is, this isn't the only critique of critical race theory, but it is one of the ones that gets repeated over and over and over and over again. And so much so that I was recently watching a debate by two prominent people on YouTube, one of whom is Charlie Kirk, known conservative, has a huge platform on YouTube. The other person's name is Vosh, progressive, left-leaning person, also has a prominent platform on YouTube. They were discussing this exact topic on Tim Pool's show just this past week. I'm gonna play a quick clip for you. The first voice you're gonna hear is Charlie Kirk's, the second voice is Vosh's. Charlie is laying out his reasoning about what he thinks education should be in America. Listen to the clip here. Question is, what's the goal person. though, right? Is, is the goal to try to have young people graduate by the time of high school to be skeptical, apprehensive, and not very proud of the country or eventually tell a true and patriotic story where you have people graduating that are thankful and have gratitude. Oh, that, I, that's I, the purpose of education when it comes through. Gratitude is not the purpose of education. Well, I think gratitude's a moral necessity. No, you should be grateful for the people in your life, but I will never be grateful to the state. I'm not that much of a collectivist. Well, not, not a state. Are you not thankful that you live in America? Now, as I was saying before, the argument against critical race theory has several points to it, but one of them is if children learn certain aspects of our history, they're going to leave high school just not loving America. They're going to be confused. They're going to be conflicted. They're not going to, they're not going to love the country that they're in. And I truly do not understand this mindset. I, I really don't. I, I don't understand why so many people are fixated with this idea that you should be forced to love America just because you live here. I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like why exactly do some people feel as though you should be forced to love this country? Why should you be forced to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance? Why should you be forced to stand for the national anthem? Why do you have to profess your undying devotion to the United States of America? It feels very authoritarian to me. The thing that people who make this argument always claim to very much be against. It seems very anti-freedom. It seems very anti what they claim is America, the freedom to believe what you want to believe, to choose what you want to choose, to live the life that you want to live. This idea of forced patriotism to me is an absolute joke. And it just seems like a crux to essentially omit parts of history that you don't know how to explain. Truthfully, forced sterilization is just one aspect of it, but it is also a very big story that is for large part not told. Not told. I learned about forced sterilization in high school. Not America's. I learned about the Nazis. I learned about them doing forced sterilization. I didn't learn anything about what America was doing. Nothing. Not until college. Why? Just why? Why do we have this idea that teaching the darkness of history is somehow egregious and that we just cannot do it whatsoever? It, it doesn't make any sense to me that a country that champions freedom doesn't want to give you the choice to love it or not. I, I don't know how you square that circle, really. I mean, it is important in my mind that we do, in fact, teach the entire story. Not just in regard to forced sterilizations, but in the regards to our treatments of minorities, our treatment of women, our treatment of LGBTQ. Just what is it that we have done? Tell the whole story. This really shouldn't be hard. We should be allowed to tell people what exactly happened, the ripple effects that have systemically affected people since these events took place. And maybe we can also talk about 
the psychological damage that it's taken on the people who were affected by this, not just now, but how that how that psychological trauma can radiate throughout the decades since these events took place and how they get passed on to the next generation. Maybe if we start to acknowledge the atrocities that have happened in America, we begin we can begin to atone for them. And we won't have to manufacture patriotism by omitting our history just to make it more palatable. Oh, I almost forgot. Let's not end this episode without a very important thing here. Sterilization and forced or coerced sterilization, eugenics, is not completely illegal in America. I want to drive that point home one more time because that does not make sense. That should be illegal. Please call your representative, call your senator. The number is 202-224-3121. Call the U.S. Capitol. Ask your member of Congress or your senator to fix that damn problem. What the hell is going on in America right now? If you liked this episode, please go ahead and subscribe so that you do not miss the next one and share it with a friend, share it on social media, please share this episode. Okay. So if you are new to this podcast, this is the part of the episode where we transition to my guest segment for the episode. It will be a brand new conversation that was different than what we, I just talked about in this segment, just as a heads up. And don't go anywhere because we have an ad break coming up from our sponsors for this episode. So please stay tuned. I'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode, Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us for another episode of Independent Thought. I am joined by my guest today, Caitlin Gear, the host of the Switching Gears podcast. Caitlin, thank you for joining Independent Thought today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to, to do this with you. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. I've actually, I, I've checked out your podcast several times in like over the past year or so. I've watched a few YouTube videos, especially when you were talking about all the things happening with Arrow. I think that was like a few years back. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I have many thoughts about that show. Yeah, I actually, that probably could be a whole separate episode, honestly, because I have also watched all eight seasons of Arrow. So 
first two seasons were so good, and then it was like they just completely forgot about what they were supposed to do. And then it turned in Felicity and Friends. I hate it. We'll definitely come back to that. But, you know, whenever I have, you know, a podcast to come on the show for the first time, the first thing I always have them do is, like, tell me a little bit about their podcast. So could you tell me what was the motivation behind starting Switching Gears? So Switching Gears, um, one, obviously, is a play on my name, which is, I used to hate my name. And then the minute I realized that there were so many puns I could do, it was like it opened up a whole new world for me. Um, but switching gears, I really kind of started a few years ago with my best friend because I wanted to prove that I had the um, talent, the drive, the whatever you want to call it to host my own radio show because I do have a background in radio. Um, I worked in radio for about almost a decade. I think it was like eight years. Yeah, eight years. That sounds right. I started with an internship in college, um, realized that there's not a lot of really female driven morning shows or even evening shows. There's just not a lot of like girl, 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 female run. It is always a guy and then like the girl sidekick, like Bobby Bones yeah. or um, Kid Craddock. They were very guy centric and then like one girl. Um, with Amy and Kelly Raspberry and which first of all fun fact everybody in radio like hates Bobby Bones which is very funny to me um that doesn't matter anyway so switching gears was kind of like created to where like you know if I was having a morning show this is what I would be talking about right now and so I talk about everything i have talked about zombies (laughs) i've talked about superpowers i have talked about um things going in the world going on in the world that maybe you didn't hear about um i've talked about i've so much really um no it definitely seems like a lot yeah i could i could go on about so many different topics um i don't know if it stems from like a because i have like the entertainment background that I do. I grew up in dance, I did theater, I danced for 15 years. Yeah, I danced for 15 years. Um, I think I just maybe didn't get enough attention as a kid. I don't know, but the podcast was really fun for me. Um, I haven't had a new episode up lately because I've been dealing with awful apartment hell, Um, but we move in two weeks and so I'm going to have episodes uh, where I revisit some of my favorite um, rom-coms from like when I was in college and yeah. high school, um, talk about the wedding planning process and really about a lot of stuff. So I, I hit a bunch of different topics. It's fun. Right. And that's actually the one thing I wanted to ask you is since you do cover such a variety of things, what is your favorite topic to talk about? <sighs> Anything that gets me heated, I feel like, or that I'm passionate about, but that's a lot of things. Um, lately, okay, so I really liked, um, what were some of the episodes I did? I really like, like, I like, take a drink every time I say like. I really enjoy true crime, but there's no way I could do an entire show dedicated to true crime. For one, yeah. the podcast universe is flooded with true crime but it it was fun to hit on like a few true crime cases that were local to Kansas that not a lot of people know about it was really fun to hit on like hauntings in Kansas that I did I love talking about scary movies um really I like talking about pop culture stuff the most I think okay okay yeah I mean that is definitely more fun to talk about than what I'm doing with politics, that's for <laughs> sure. I mean, I thought for a little while there that maybe I could find a way to have a second podcast where I talk about pop culture stuff, but that did not last, unfortunately. So now we're just here with independent thought. And you know, speaking of politics, you told me briefly that you've actually met a prominent politician before. You said that you met uh, the senator of Kansas or a senator of Kansas. Sure he did, Roger Marshall. What was that uh, experience should... like? 
Well, okay. I should ask this question first. Like, can I cuss? Sure. Okay. <laughs> he is a fuckwad. <laughs> he is the worst. The absolute worst. He is sexist. He is a misogynist asshole. I cannot stand him. When I worked at a radio station that was political yeah. and also sports, and it was heavily, heavily geared toward men. Roger Marshall came on to go on to the um, political station, came into the office. My desk was at the front of the office when you do enter in, but I'm not just like the reception girl. I am, I was the director of traffic. So I was in charge of all of the commercials literally loading and building the entire radio log all day long. Okay. And he comes in, takes a look at me, and he says something sexist like, hi, little lady. And I'm like, oh, why are you here? You're gross. And he just stares at you uncomfortably for a while, like, hmm. I'm Roger Marshall. I'm so cool. <laughs> I'm a doctor, but I don't believe in vaccinations. And he's just pretentious. He was awful. I was just staring at him like, I can't stand you. You are a tick, an evil little tick. I and then he went off. I've not heard someone say that insult in a long time. <laughs> I had to get colorful. I cannot stand him. He's the worst. And then since the whole insurrection for the Capitol, he's just been, he's been a pit stain. He's been an armpit pit stain for the state of Kansas. And it's just annoying because I wanted the lovely lady, the other doctor, the lady to win. And I voted for her and she didn't win. And I'm still, still a little upset. But yeah. Like I, I remember back around the election time that I thought that was going to be a pretty decently close race, especially after your state of Kansas mm -hmm. well, elected a Democrat for governor in 2018, if I remember correctly. We have actually, which is really cool, we've actually elected a few Democratic women. We had Kathleen Sebelius, if I remember correctly, she was Democrat. And we had another one. And then, yeah, we have our wonderful one. And I love her. And it's really frustrating because the, whatever the correct term is, the like Republican party has basically roadblocked everything she tried to do to protect the state of Kansas from COVID-19. Hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of scandals around the country, you know, not, not just individual states, but also in various businesses in regards to COVID-19, unfortunately. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today was because you saw your own personal scandal at your workplace. And so I want you to kind of tell me a little bit about what exactly happened at this radio station that you worked in, in regards to unemployment insurance. Here is some shit. So, I worked at the radio station called Steckline Communications, and it had um, the sports talk radio, the political station. I couldn't even tell you what the actual channels were called because I've just tried to block it from my memory. But when the pandemic started, I was one of the few people there who was like, this is bad. I had been seeing you know, articles, popping up like about this mysterious virus that has originated possibly in China. It's really bad. People are dying. And I was like, oh no, this is going to be horrible if it makes its way over here. And then it did. And the pandemic started and the whole country was in like this weird state of what do we do? And the state of Kansas was starting to <clears throat> close down. And Governor Kelly closed the schools for the rest of the school year. And that's when we realized that it was getting very serious. So about that time, they, I say they, it was management. <clears throat> it was not the owner, Greg Steckline. And I will say his name because a lot of this is public knowledge, one. And second of all, 
he didn't want it known, maybe he should have acted better. So management pulled us into the conference room, told us how we probably wouldn't survive the pandemic because radio is free to the public, but the way that we stay free to the public is by getting in advertising to the stations. Since a lot of businesses were closing down, we weren't really getting advertising, no money in, we can't really have money to run the station. So they pull us in and they sit down and tell us that. And then they say, you know, we're gonna have to have everybody go on unemployment. And I'm like, dang, okay. And then they're like, you know, in a couple months, I think everything will be back to normal. It'll be over and we'll keep going on as usual. I went, oh, okay. So I get like a couple months off work. Fabulous. And then they start talking about how they want us all to keep working. They wanted us to be on unemployment, but keep working. That's fraud. <laughs> Doesn't matter which way you spin it, it is fraud. And I was sitting there like, there's no way this is happening. This is not real. This is a joke. I'm being pranked. Where's Ashton Kutcher? But it was real. It was real. They really, they just wanted all of us to go on unemployment. And management claimed that the owner would then, if we weren't making enough off of unemployment and the extra 600, I think at the time was for the extra a week for unemployment, right. he would pay us the difference in cash under the table. Do you feel comfortable saying the name of this radio station? Steckline Communications. Okay. In Wichita, Kansas? In Wichita, Kansas. So what exactly transpired after that? Like after that meeting took place, did people accept that offer? Did people reject it? What did you do? Like, like what happened afterwards? Did this so, actually take place? I was sitting there kind of like with a... I'm sorry. This isn't real. This is not happening. Look on my face. Um... I probably had RBF. My manager asked me, they're like, you seem really worried about this. And I'm like, yeah, you're asking me to commit fraud. Oh, well, it's not fraud. You know, we're just all volunteering our time. Buddy, I don't think a judge is gonna see it that way at all. So I went home, I talked it over, I called, <laughs> I talked to um, my then boyfriend, I talked to my dad, I called my mom, I called my brother, and I was like, what do I do? Because I didn't want to do it, but I also right. needed somebody else to tell me that I wasn't crazy. Right. And they're like, no, that's that's fraud. That's very bad. Very, very, very bad. That'll come back on you a thousand percent. I said, okay. So the next day I said, look, I'm not doing it. I'm not comfortable doing it. Either you keep me on payroll or I walk. And because I was one of two people who knew the system, they knew that I was super valuable and they agreed to let me stay on payroll. But there was one other employee, I think that had to stay on payroll because he hadn't been there long enough to even qualify for unemployment. Right. Everyone else took it. They really were on unemployment, getting paid cash under the table when Greg felt like it, by the way, it was whether or not he felt like it that week. Um, that went on for, I think a month and a half, maybe two months. I can't remember how long exactly. We had another meeting, said everybody could go off unemployment because Greg had gotten the, um, uh, the- Paycheck protection? Yes, the PPE loan, the PPE loan. Yeah. And you can actually look it up. This is public uh, record where he got, I think a quarter of a million dollars for payroll. Kind of funny how he got uh, money for payroll when he only had like two people on the payroll. So then as a result, and I only found this out from the um, lady who was filling in for HR, because we didn't actually have an HR. She was just kind of filling in, doing payroll for us. Um, he was then putting his entire family on payroll. 
And I know he was because I saw physically some of his kids pick up the paychecks. And then I also heard, I think the daughter say that they weren't cashing them because they weren't supposed to. So he was literally giving checks to his family for thousands more than people were actually making. Like he was giving his kids 6,000, 4,000. I think his wife, he was giving her 14,000. And then they weren't cashing the checks. And I don't know how he hasn't been caught in any kind of audit because they were made in QuickBooks. They were physically printed. Whether or not they literally take out that money yeah. to cash it, there's still a paper trail. So all of that money is still in that account or they did cash it and then they put it into a different account. I don't know. But I do know that he did get like $5,000 from Sedgwick County where Wichita yeah. is located. And then they, he got a quarter of a million from the government that he doesn't have to repay. So one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on to talk about this is because right now we are living, you know, amongst what some people, you know, I guess you would characterize as a work, you know, a worker shortage. Now there have been plenty of debates about like why there's this worker shortage, right? But the, the one narrative that you hear from a lot of people right now is that, well, people are just lazy and they're just staying on unemployment and they're just freeloading off of the system and that's just what they do. And that's the reason why they won't go back to work. This is a narrative that we hear a lot right now, especially you know, as you go to certain businesses and everyone's understaffed and everyone's upset about the fact that people are understaffed and they're just looking for some kind of a scapegoat to talk about like, well, see, this is the reason why all these places are understaffed because these lazy people are sitting at home collecting unemployment checks. I just wanted you to come on and talk about maybe a slightly different perspective about how maybe not everyone is staying at home collecting unemployment checks. Maybe some people are being asked to work at their jobs while collecting unemployment checks. Maybe some business owners are illegally seizing money that they should not be seizing, that they have no business doing so. And yep. maybe this situation isn't quite as black and white as we all want to make it out to be. Because it has honestly been very upsetting to me to hear just this disparaging of people relentlessly. Same. And it's, it's also infuriating to me because I worked retail for so long. I hope I never have to work retail ever again because I don't think I can handle another Karen yelling at me about right. why something wasn't on discount. A lot of it is people are fed up, one, with minimum wage and low wages, two, having to even deal with Karens, but then you add in a pandemic on top of that? Hell no. No. Mm -mm. No, it, it's, it's been an incredibly difficult thing for a lot of people to deal with. And I, and I think there aren't really worker shortages at higher paying jobs. There aren't no. worker shortages at jobs that have benefits. There aren't worker shortages at jobs that have really well like paved out upward trajectories for their employees. There just seems to be worker shortages at minimum wage jobs, very high stress, like high demanding, low paying jobs. So just wanted to kind of point that out for a little bit for a second for people. But on top of that, you also kind of told me that this was also a toxic work environment where you overheard some people referring to the vice president saying that uh, she slept her way to the top because that's what women do. Yep. Yep. Okay. So this was without a doubt, the most toxic, toxic environment I've ever had to work in. I do not work there anymore. So I don't really care what I say about them. I now work in a lawyer office. I feel like I'm spoiled because they buy me snacks and it is magical. But at this station, they were so far right wing, terrifying, scary, so sexist, so misogynistic, just the worst and racist. When it was announced that she was the VP, um, the guy who had his own little radio show, um, Andy Hoosier, 
He has his own show called The Voice of Reason. I don't know what kind of voice of reason he thinks he is because he's wrong 99% of the time. He has his own show. You can go listen to it if you want to have a bad time. Um, he's the one that said that. Another one of my coworkers said, and I got so mad. I was already mad to begin with because he said the woman comment. And I don't know if I had told you this part um, beforehand. But my other coworker who is in sales proceeded to say he only picked her so that she could be the token inward, full on inward. And I went, dude, you can't say that. What the hell is wrong with you? Oh, well, it's just true. That's just what they do. And I went, who? What are you talking about? You need to get out of here before I hurt you because you're not making any sense. You're being an asshole. And I'm not working with this today. So you need to leave. And I yelled at them. I told them to get the fuck out of here. And I made them leave the office. There are so many different things to kind of more or less unpack with that statement. Yeah, yeah. But, you yeah. know, I, I honestly, like right now, we are constantly dealing with a narrative in our media that says that, you know, sexism is way overblown, that racism is way overblown, that they, that quote unquote, the left makes them into bigger deals than they actually are. Um, and then we also hear narratives again, that say that, you know, the reason why people, you know, are not showing up to work is because people are lazy and that's the only story that you need to hear. And so, there are a lot, there's a lot more that I, we could probably dive into as far as yeah. each one of those individual channels about why those narratives are insanely wrong. But I was just more or less, one of the goals of independent thought is to bring people on from all different walks of life, from all different parts of this country, to kind of just talk a little bit about their stories so and kind of like normalize the fact that these things are happening and that they're not just random stories here and there, but that they do happen all over the place. So Caitlin, thank you for coming on today and telling us a little bit about that. I really do appreciate it. As we're kind of closing this out, could you just tell everyone again where they can find you on social media? Um, at switching underscore gears basically on everything. And it's gears spelled funny, G-E-E-R-S. Okay, and for everyone who's interested, if you want to like click down to the episode notes, there'll be some links in there that you'll be able to click on to find Caitlin's podcast. Thank you so much for coming on today. And to everyone else, I'll be right back after our final break and I'll give you my final thoughts of the day. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. I first want to say thank you to the subscribers, the people who clicked that little button next to my logo, who continue to come back each and every episode. Thank you for subscribing to this podcast. And to the 50 people now who have signed up for my Patreon. You are all amazing people. Everyone else is amazing as well but you are especially awesome. So thank you for supporting me and this podcast. It truly makes all of the difference, truly. If you are one of those who is not a member of the Patreon and you are interested in seeing the video version of this podcast, consider joining Patreon with the link in the description and you can see video versions of the episodes from season four. I want to thank my guest, Caitlin. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and sharing your story. I am glad you don't work in that, let's call it environment anymore. I could not believe some of the stories that you were telling about that place to me, both on the episode and after the episode, which unfortunately we did not record that extra stuff, should have, did not. I apologize, everyone. It was great material. I want to briefly just mention again what I mentioned in the episode about the worker more or less realignment. Right now, there's a fairly narrative going around our country that the reason why people aren't going back to work is because they're lazy. 
And that unemployment insurance is the reason that's keeping everyone out of the workforce. I'll tell you that I live in a state that ended unemployment insurance about six weeks ago. Do we still have worker shortages here? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Is it because people are lazy and they just don't want to go back to work? I'm sure that's some people's story. Sure. There's no way to say that that's not someone's story. But to say that that is the story is gross and completely inadequate as to addressing what we're seeing overall. High paying jobs are not lacking workers, people. Jobs that pay well, they're not lacking workers. There's no shortages there. All of these entry level bottom jobs with low wages, high stress, high demand, these are the jobs that are frequently not being staffed. It is not just some random coincidence that those are the jobs that are not being filled right now. Maybe we should all stop and ask ourselves why people who all work in basically the exact same way are deciding not to go back to work. Let us just think for a second about what was talked about just in this past election, when during the Democratic primary, Almost everyone who took that stage, all like 75 people who were running for president during the 2020 the Democratic primary, they all had the exact same story to tell. What was that story? That Americans are overworked, that they have to work two and three part-time jobs just to pay the bills. And even at that point, most Americans were still like, what, what was the number they kept throwing out? that most Americans were still $400 away, a $400 emergency away from being completely broke. They could not afford a $400 emergency, most Americans in our country, in our great economy, pre-COVID. That, that was what we were told. And then a pandemic happened. And so as people were already financially strapped, as tight as humanly could be, then jobs were taken away from them. And then people were forced to reduce their work hours. They had bills pile up, rent is piled up. The federal government tried to send out assistance to people, but as we know, it never really made it to the states. $50 billion was sent out in rental assistance, for instance, of that 50 billion that the states received, only 3 billion of it's actually been administered as of today. People took a moment to kind of reevaluate what the hell is going on in their lives. And maybe they thought to themselves, I don't want to work in that kind of an environment anymore. I don't want to be spending so much time and energy going absolutely nowhere and still being broke at the end of the day. Maybe we should just all just kind of suck it up for a few months and just realize that the people who've been working these jobs for the longest time are just reevaluating their lives. And in the process of that, it seems now that certain corporations are now willing to start paying people better wages, which you're damn right. They should have been doing it the whole, the whole time. That's why we've been fighting for this higher minimum wage. Conversation drives me insane. Anyway, transitioning on to my first topic, sterilizations that were forced or coerced. Come on, everyone. This should not even be a point of contention. In fact, in a, in a strange way, this might be an issue that both people who are pro-choice and pro-life can be on the same side of. It, it, it's absolutely insane to me that forced or coerced sterilizations are not illegal. They're not unconstitutional. How is that a thing? Like We are in the midst of talking about civil rights ad nauseum in this country right now. And I don't mean nauseum in a bad way. Like We are very much involved in talking about civil rights, civil liberties, talking about atoning for the past, about talking about like the terrible things that have happened in our history. And that's still legal. That is still legal in America. Why? Why? Someone, everyone, please make some noise. Talk to somebody. Call your representative. I gave the phone number at the beginning. I will give it again. 202-224-3121. Call those people in Washington who are getting paid to be on vacation right now because it is the August recess and they are chilling back at home 
while getting paid and telling the rest of us to get back to work and that we're lazy. The irony is unbelievable to me. So what is coming next? I have a panel-based episode coming next. I've been talking about these for a little while now. They are now going to start coming. I am excited to dish out hopefully several of these over the course of season four. I am hoping that they go very well because I want to do a lot of them in the future. I think that they will be great for not only for the people who will be doing them as we should be able to have some very engaging conversations, but I'm hoping that the audience receives it really well as well. So tell me what you think. Please go ahead. If you liked this episode, go ahead and send me some feedback online, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, a YouTube comment. Tell me what you thought of this episode. Be on the lookout for that next panel-based episode coming next week. If you are a regular on Twitch, a couple of the people who'll be on my panel next week are Twitch streamers. I occasionally make appearances on Twitch. If you find me, you find me. I'm not really putting myself out there just yet, but I am putting myself a little bit out there on YouTube. Go find me on YouTube at Independent Thought. There are some videos floating around out there. So check that out. Thank you to everyone who tuned in for this episode. See you in the next one. Oh, and before I let you go, I figured since everyone's been quoting Martin Luther King recently around the, around the CRT debate, I figure I'll end this episode by quoting him as well. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Go use your voice, people. See you next time.